The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. I'd like to ask you to uh, open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Today we begin this third chapter, and this chapter preserves Paul's final words to the church at Thessalonica, and likewise they are the beginning of the end for us as we prepared to close our study of living in the light of Christ's return. The first five verses that we'll read in this chapter are a slight pause in the apostle's instructions to the church as he interjects a a personal note here. Now, he'll very quickly move on to uh, the next verses, verse number six, to matters of church discipline that are stern and insistent. They are holy and Spirit-inspired apostolic instructions that are imperatives for good order in the church. And as soon as we're finished with this, we will enter into a series of four messages that have to do with order in the church, uh, church discipline and some subjects. But these first five verses, while they are also commands that the apostle gives, these are, these are more of a tender expression of the apostle's heart. They express what Paul knew that he needed as he was impressed to preach the gospel of Christ and also what his converts needed as they were formed into the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he continues to write his letter. He's nearing the end. And the next words that his amanuenses wrote on the parchment are these, Second Thessalonians 3 beginning in verse number 1. The apostle says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. I want you to notice that the first word in verse number one is finally. Now for Baptist people on Sunday mornings, the sweetest words that they can hear are the words finally. After you've listened to a sermon for 35 or 40 minutes, the preacher says, finally, and that's the signal, it's almost over. Finally uh, is a word that brings us to the last point of a sermon. Finally is a signal that says, well, you can put up the listening sheet, stuff everything into your Bible, close your Bible, put your pen back into your pocket, pick up your coat, get ready to go, it is almost over. And so when the preacher says, finally, papers are rustling, people are waking up from their naps, and it's not going to be long until there's a rush toward the door. Now, because of that, I've heard homiletics teachers say that you should never say, finally, at the end of a sermon, because once you say that, you've lost the crowd. Everybody's ready to go. Nobody hears what you say at the end. But here, I want you to notice that although Paul says, finally, he wasn't finished, 
He's just in a little interlude before he begins another subject. Now, in Greek, the word translated here as finally is not an indication of, hey, folks, I'm just about done. We're all finishing, we're finishing up. No, what it means in the Greek is, besides what I've already told you, now I've got something else to say to you. Now, I want you to remember that, that the next time that I say finally in the sermon, I'm always using it in the Greek sense. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily done and ready to go home. But as you can see and in your Bibles, this is the final chapter to the Thessalonians. And in this interlude, Paul has some thoughts about some things that are on his mind, things that he needs personally, and then also his personal hope for them. And so he says, finally, brethren, pray for us. And I, and I want you to see this, that the Apostle Paul, with all of his talents, with all of his efforts, with all of his education, with all of his training, and with all of his experience, with all the respect, with all the brilliance that he had, with all of his outstanding theology, what is it that Paul needed? He needed people to pray for him. And I want you to understand that Paul's confidence was not in what he could do. His confidence was not in his promotional prowess. It was not in the programs that he could design for the churches. It was not his personality, nor was it the personality of his ministry team. No, his confidence was only in the Lord. And despite all the abilities that the apostle had, he was nothing without divine dependence. And so he asked the church to pray for him. He, he, he wants them to be in touch with the Lord and to remember him in their prayers. Now we know that he's already taught them to pray without ceasing and then he gave them the model of his own life when he said that I pray for you. In the first chapter, in verse number 11, he says, Wherefore, also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith and power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says, I always pray for you. And we read this in other places where Paul told uh, the people that, he, that were converted under his ministry, I pray for you. Now, he says, I need you to return that favor in kind. He needs them to pray for him because he has no strength. He has no ability. He has no hope for survival in that rough and tumble world of first century Christians if he didn't have the power of God and he knew that the prayers of the people helped him. Nearly every week I receive emails from parachurch ministries that push and peddle their wares about how they can help us to grow the church. They have a program, they have skills, they, they are experts at this, they have all the materials that you need that they promise are surefire guarantees that we can get people in the doors and we can make your church ministry relevant to the modern world. But not once have I seen in all these materials that I receive any dependence on the Holy Spirit. And never have I seen 
the encouragement to just throw all the secular materials away and just tell the people to do this. Get down on your knees and begin to pray to the Lord. Ask for Holy Spirit power. Ask Him to empower His church to help us to work. Have the Holy Spirit just come and fill us. I don't see that in the materials. And I want you to look at this again. Paul was all the things that I just mentioned. He's educated. He's brilliant. He's logical. He's persistent. He works. He's loving. He's patient. He's dedicated. He was a superlative Christian. There's no one in all the history of Christianity that reached the heights of his dedication and closeness to the Savior. But do you see who he asked to pray? He asked new Christians. People in this church were new Christians. They were weak people. He asked those that he just sent two letters correcting and encouraging them. They are struggling Christians, but he asked struggling Christians to pray. So here we have the strongest Christian asking the weakest Christians to pray for him. Does that make sense to you? Does it make sense that Paul would think that their prayers had any value, that they were worth anything? Well, yes, he did believe that because he knew the power was not in them. He wasn't dependent on what they knew and what they could do. He was dependent on this, the Lord that they were talking to. He was dependent on God. And this is what our prayers do. They unleash the power of God. And I'm not saying that you can live in sin and you can defy God and still have God at your beck and call, but I am saying that even a new convert, a weak Christian, a Christian who hasn't learned very much can do this. He can pray. If he has a desire to serve God and to walk with God as Paul hoped that these people did, the power of prayer is there. If we are dependent upon the divine, God will hear us. Now, as a pastor of the Lord's Church, I certainly do know my limitations. I know what some of you think of me. I, I do my best each week to give you something that you can chew on. I try to feed you with the Word. I, at times, try to preach things that other people are afraid to preach. I've tried to give you a doctrinal foundation in these many years as pastor and as a consequence, there may be some of you that think that I can do everything, uh, that I know everything, and you have confidence that I do. Others, I'm sure, you just barely tolerate me. Amen. But there is one thing that I do know about myself, especially when I'm in my office and I'm working on sermons. I can't do anything unless the Lord helps me. There are many Sundays that I walk up on this platform and I stand here behind this pulpit and I know that I'm not going to be able to preach unless the Lord gives me the energy to preach. I know that the sermon that I preach is not going any further than the table that's in front of me unless the Lord translates the sermon in the transmission to make it effectual to the hearers. And I pray for that. I pray for that before I come into this pulpit, but it does me best when I know that you're praying for it. Now, if you'll permit me, I would like to confess a common mistake that I've made through these many years that I've been pastor. I've had new converts that come to me that have just been saved. 
I've had others that for various reasons they became dormant in their Christian lives and they haven't done very much. Both those types will come to me and the new convert is stirred up because he's just been saved and he wants to get busy working for the Lord. And then the dormant Christian may get stirred up when he hears a message that he's certain was pointed directly at him. And both of these will come to me and they'll say, what can we do now? How can I get involved in a church ministry? And I can't say to them, well, you know, we have a huge church. We've got six dozen programs and we have 112 different ministry opportunities. Just go and get plugged into one of those. Fill out the card, sign the card, join up and get to work in that ministry. Well, we don't have that. You know, we're pretty much a teaching church that considers the pulpit to be our first and foremost ministry. And I'm not likely to tell you that if you want to get involved in church ministry, go home and prepare a sermon, and next week you can preach. I'm not likely to do that. In fact, I won't do that. So my first thought often is, you want something to do? Well, you know, those guys out there doing the landscaping each week, they need help. If you go out there, they'll give you a rake, and they'll give you a leaf blower. They'll have you out there pushing around wood chips and sweeping up the parking lot. Well, that's one way you can get into ministry, but I think mostly that's a mistake for me to say that. Really, what I ought to tell the new Christian and the fired-up Christian is to get busy praying. Pray for me. Pray for the church. Make your ministry a ministry of prayer. Because depending upon the divine, depending upon God, that is the way to increase every good thing in your life and everything good in the life of the church. So that's first. That's what Paul is thinking about in this interlude. He has some thoughts that he just wants to share with us. He dictates to his stenographer, that amanuensis, and he tells, tells them this is what's on his mind, this is what he needs, and this is what he thinks the church needs. So we're going to take a few minutes here today to look through this passage and list the things that Paul says are needed, and we'll examine these. Now the first of these, what should we pray for? Well, first we pray, and he tells them to pray for the progress of the message. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Now, he asked them to pray for his ministry team. We'll get to that in a moment. Pray for him and Silas and Timothy as they preach. But this is what he's mainly interested in in this first part is that the word would have free course. Now, we notice that he refers to the gospel as the word of the Lord. Sometimes Paul would refer to it as my gospel, but that doesn't mean it was his invention. But he meant that he was entrusted with what the Lord told him. It is the word of the Lord. That's a phrase that we often see in the scriptures. It refers in the Old Testament mostly to God's commands, to those things that God spoke. And then the word of the Lord in the New Testament sense most often means the gospel of Christ. It's the message of the full pardon of sin through belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that he gave his life in order that sinners would be saved. The word of the Lord is that people must repent 
of their sins. His word is that they must turn in faith to Christ. And as you know, this word of the Lord, the gospel, is most often hated by people. They reject the gospel of Christ. They will not receive it. And the gospel is hindered by these people that oppose it. So Paul's first focus here is on the facility of the message. The message must go out. The message must go quickly. Now he says, free course, that it may have free course. And those words can be translated as run. Free course means run. It's like a strong runner who doesn't give out. The gospel must go everywhere because people everywhere are dying without Christ. People everywhere have not heard the gospel. Most people haven't heard it and they are on their way to hell, the Bible says, because they haven't heard this message and they haven't believed in Jesus Christ. And so the the Bible teaches that there is urgency to the gospel. The scriptures tell us that today is the day of salvation. People need to know this now. We can't wait. We can't take our time with this. We can't be sleeping dormant Christians. Romans says that it's high time to awaken out of sleep. And so this is what God calls us to do, to awaken out of our sleep and run with the gospel. And you see what happens if we don't. One of the things that Jesus Christ promised to his church, he said, My church will not fail. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is a promise of the perpetuity of the church. This church, the church, will survive because there are some Christians who are awake. God promised this, that institutionally the church will survive. But he didn't say that this church will. He didn't say that there's any single congregation that will always be here. Today, the church at Thessalonica is gone. The church at Ephesus is gone. The church at Corinth is gone. And if we don't run with the gospel, the Berean Baptist Church will be gone. We can survive if I answer those emails and buy the church growth strategies and incorporate into the church what the world would like to see. Oh, we can be vibrant social butterflies here. We can make this a community center. We can get a rock and roll band and we can get a a rap artist, a rollicking rap artist. Now, those things help organizations survive, but they don't do anything for the church. Those things are not the church, and that is not what Paul asked us to pray for. Now, thankfully, these first century church members must have prayed. And the other places where Paul preached, they must have prayed, because the gospel in the first century went like lightning throughout the empire. It ran like a, a bolt of electricity across high wires. Before the end of the first century... The gospel was carried far north into England. Now, of course, it wasn't England then, but England later became a stronghold of the gospel. Also in the first century, the gospel went out from Jerusalem and went down into Africa and reached that continent. Tradition says that the Apostle Thomas took it as far east as India. And then, of course, there's this great barrier that kept the gospel from coming to our part of the world. There's a sea that they couldn't cross, but eventually there was exploration and and there were ships that crossed the sea. And what came with those men and those ships? The gospel of Jesus Christ. People were awake. 
They took the gospel wherever they went. Christians were faithful to pray that the gospel would run. And they prayed that this baton would be picked up and relayed to people all across the globe who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, pray that the gospel will progress. Pray that it will run everywhere. Pray that it will succeed as it did in you. Now in the last Part of the verse, he said, that it will be glorified as it was in you. Pray that the gospel will not be rejected. Pray that it will be held up, that it will be cherished and recognized as it is the word of the Lord. Many people in Thessalonica, of course, believe, not great numbers of people, but there was a church established there. Most didn't believe, but there's this small band of disciples that received Paul's teachings as it was. First Thessalonians 2.13 says they received what he preached as the word of God, and the word worked effectually in them, and they believed. Uh, Paul said pray that in other places that the message will progress, that it will successfully work in them as it did in you. May the gospel be held up as true. That's the important thing. May it be received as true and thereby Christ is glorified. And this is what we pray for as well. And we pray for not only in in this location, but for missionaries all across the world. They preach the gospel in these far off places that they would have success and hearts would be open to hear and believe. Well, going on into the second verse, he writes, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Now, next, he asked, to pray for the preservation of the messengers. Now, first it is to pray for the message, now to pray for the messengers. In Romans, Paul said, How shall they hear without a preacher? Now, Satan knows that. He's powerless against the gospel, God uses the gospel. He breaks the chains of hearts that are bound in sin. God effectually calls sinners, dead sinners, to life, to hear and believe. Satan continually tries to blind people to the gospel, but God strips away those blinders. Satan cannot stop anyone from believing. And he can't do anything with the message once it's out. But he can do this. He works to hobble the messengers. Stop the messengers and nobody will hear. How will they hear without a preacher? And so Satan uses every discouragement at his disposal, everything imaginable to stop preachers. And you you can just count on it that he worked harder on Paul than he did anyone. And these Thessalonians that he writes to, they're familiar with this. They know what happened to Paul when he was in their city. He had the opportunity to preach and teach for only about three weeks. And during that time, as he preached, the opposition was growing. The Jews didn't like the influence that Paul had on the Jewish people. The Gentiles didn't like him preaching to people and turning them from their paganism. But there were some of them that believed, and the gospel progressed. Most of the Jews and Gentiles were angry. So the Jews assaulted the house of a believer named Jason and took him into custody. And Paul saw that and he got the picture of what was about to happen, that if he didn't flee, they would seize him and then nobody would have a preacher. So the disciples gathered him and 
Silas and Timothy up and they took them or sent them down to Berea. Then what did the Jews in Thessalonica do? Well, they weren't content that Paul left Thessalonica. They followed him all the way to Berea. And they started to berate him there, and they started an uproar there, and then soon Paul had to leave Berea as well and go to another place. And that is the same story that we see over and over again throughout Paul's ministry. He barely escaped with his life many times. In Damascus, the story is that in in, in Scripture that he had to be let down over the wall in a basket to escape his enemies. He caused an uproar in Ephesus. He was stoned at Lystra. In Jerusalem, he was nearly torn apart at the temple when he preached Christ. Now, he asked the Ephesians to pray for him, that he would be bold through all of this. He needed the courage to preach. Then he wrote to the Corinthians and said to them that he faced wild beasts at Ephesus. And it's most likely what he meant that he was put into the arena for sport to fight with wild animals and had to fight from being eaten alive. In 2 Corinthians, he gave a summary of his persecuted life as a missionary. Now, I'd like you to turn there, if you would, to 2 Corinthians, so we can look at it together. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and there is a roster of the atrocities against the apostle. And, And bear in mind... He, he writes this to a church that was giving him fits. They were listening to false teachers. He feared they were being deceived. And so he said to them that I fear that by, lest by any means the serpent that beguiled Eve has also beguiled you, that you should be corrupted from your simplicity that's in Christ. And then look at this catalog of persecutions that he endured beginning in verse 24. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. He says, Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care Of all the churches. Look at that. Do you think he needed prayer? He said pray. That he would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Unreasonable means perverse. It means to be resistant to what's obviously good for you. Or we could just substitute there morally insane. And isn't that true? How true is this? That that. The gospel is the way that people escape hell and go to heaven so that it's morally insane to reject the gospel. And then he adds that those who opposed him him were wicked. He means they're evil. And, And the word there comes from another word that actually means aggressively wicked. They weren't content just to shut their ears and not listen. No, they want to get their hands on this guy that's giving them this message Take the messenger, twist him up, break his bones, and kill him. And this is what we find happened with the original apostles and the way they were treated. After Christ died, these apostles that he chose lived up to the predictions he had for them that they would be baptized with the same 
baptism that he was baptized with. And there he's not talking about water baptism. He's speaking of all the trials and persecutions that he went through. And that happened. They were beaten by the Jews. They were told not to preach anymore in the name of Christ. Each of them, except for John, was martyred for their faith. And yet, do you know what they said when they were threatened? Let me read to you from Acts 4. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you, or more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They were willing, Paul was willing, to endure persecution. Persecution influences that first issue, doesn't it? Though it's more personal, persecution can keep the gospel from progressing. How shall they hear without a preacher? So do you see the reason for the prayer for the messengers? Persecution is inevitable. That's the history of the church. More than 50 million Christians have died at the hands of their enemies. And countless more were tortured, maimed, their tongues were cut out. So the gospel couldn't be heard. What's the reason? Well, the last part of this verse tells us. All men have not faith. Now that depends on what commentator you read as to what the meaning of that is, how to be interpreted. I like this interpretation. I think it's probably the right one. That nobody has faith unless it's given by God. Nobody has faith by himself. Unless God gives faith, nobody will believe. So we forget, just forget about Anyone just waking up one day and deciding they're going to believe in Jesus because all don't have faith, we need to pray that God will grant faith, that God will give faith to his elect and they will believe. Now, in the meantime, God's messengers are preserved from those who don't believe. They're preserved from them because they don't have faith and so they'll always be hostile to the gospel. So we pray for this, that God will preserve the lives and the integrity and the determination of messengers of the gospel. Pray that they won't be discouraged. We need prayer. Now eventually persecution will reach us. We don't experience much of it now, but the government is already, even at this hour, working to tell us what we can and what we cannot preach. I'm just waiting for Google to decide that they're going to kick us off of YouTube because they've decided that the gospel is hate speech. Now we move on then to verse number 3. But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Now thirdly, pray for the protection of believers, people that believe the gospel. Now the focus shifts from their prayers to the apostle to his desires for them. Now, he encourages them because they are in persecution. I mean, that's mostly the reason for these two letters. Persecution had discouraged them. Persecution confused them, caused them to think that maybe the Lord's already returned. So Paul says, well, wait just a minute. Here's what will happen. Because you belong to the Lord, he will protect you. He will establish you in the faith. He will make you strong and guard you against evil. I hope that I made that clear in the last message. Paul made this clear, that their election of God 
and their effectual call of the Holy Spirit were evidences of God's intention to bring them safely to heaven. Now, when I say safely, I mean there was nothing that could take their souls. Well, certainly people die. But there was nothing that could take their souls. And their election of God was the strongest proof that could be given that they were established and that God would not let them fail because their salvation is his eternal purpose for them. So he prayed that they would recognize and understand that the Lord is always faithful to his promises and the Lord is relentless about his children. And though persecutors would pursue them and they would try to ruin their faith, where should they turn? Well, their assurance is found in divine dependence. And so as he looked to the Lord, so must they look to the Lord. Because the same Lord that enabled him to endure all that entire list of aggressions that we read is the same Lord that will protect them. God began a good work in them. God will complete that good work. That's God's eternal design for his children. And if God is not faithful to do it, they fail. And thus God fails. Will God fail? Not Paul's God. He said in Philippians, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I want to read another wonderful verse that Peter wrote. This is, I think, one of the most comforting and hopeful verses in the New Testament. Peter said that you are God's elect. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has begotten you to a living hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He preserves you for your inheritance in heaven, an inheritance that can never be taken away. And then he describes the ones that God does this for this way. 1 Peter 1.5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He said, you are kept by the power of God. Now, if you haven't looked that verse up, you might want to. You might want to underline it, and especially the word kept, because this is a great word in Scripture. It's a word that means that God has built a fortress around you, that God has put a garrison around you, that God has set a guard over you. And the thought that would come to their minds as they read this was of that mean, lean, fighting machine who's the Roman soldier. But Paul says you are kept by the power of God. That's greater than Roman soldiers because you have the armies of God's angels that protect you. God will establish you. God will protect you. So never fear what men can do to you. Now again, it is certainly true that you will die. Everybody will die. But not everybody will die like you. Remember it, Christian. Don't fear because God has his angels ready to carry you into heaven. Now for our fourth observation, verse number four. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that you both do and will do the things which we command you. Fourthly, pray for the performance of the word. To perform the word. What does the word do in a Christian? Well, it, it changes us from disobedient sinners who care nothing for the work of the Lord to people who delight in the word and work of the Lord. We submit to the word. We do the word. We perform the word. What does James say? Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. Now, Paul, Paul said we have confidence that you will do what you have been commanded to do. Why would he have such confidence? Because he knows that believers are changed. 
And a believer gives evidence of the change in his heart by obeying the gospel and living it. And I will tell you that that is a definitive mark of a Christian. That is a necessary mark. And if you don't have it as part of your resume, then you can't be a Christian. Christians perform. They're told what to do in the Word and they do it. Now, people that aren't truly saved won't do it because they have no power to do it. But Paul has confidence they do have the power of God in them. How did he know? Well, he looked at their lives and saw what they did. I mentioned that last week. In 1 Thessalonians, he said, You turned from idols to what? To serve. To serve the living and true God. So they received Paul's message that it was the Word of God. They rejected their immoral lifestyles. They turned from their fornication. Their love was increasing. Their hope was in the return of Christ. They're concerned about all these things. And people that aren't saved are not concerned about any of those things. A person who says that he is a Christian and goes on living in his immoral lifestyle, who goes on talking the way that he used to talk, who goes on enjoying his old friends as he used to do, who goes on supporting worldly stuff like he always did, that is not a real Christian. And we've seen that in Paul's letters repeatedly, haven't we? Christianity always boils down to a sanctification issue. You are God's children if you are being sanctified. You are his children if you are holy. And how do you tell if a person is holy? They live by God's commandments. Now Paul means Old Testament commandments that reflect God's character. New Testament commandments that explain and supplement what God expects from his church. The commandments, always remember this, the commandments do not make you holy. But the commandments show that you are. Now finally, and this is the Greek sense of the word. (laughs) Don't put your stuff up yet. This is the last point, but do me the courtesy of listening, even though I said finally. Number five, pray for perseverance in the faith. That is, pray to endure in the faith. And the Lord direct your hearts, verse 5, the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Patience is endurance. It is perseverance. Now let me sum it up quickly for you. You must consider how much God loves you. You must consider how much he was willing to do for you. You must consider that the way he wants you to demonstrate his love for you is in how you treat other people. Love is the signature mark of Christianity. Now, what happens when you love? Well, I think everybody can testify that love can make you do things that you would never do. Love can cause you to risk more, to work more. Love caused you to fight more. It caused you to endure more. What will you do for love? Well, I think every true Christian would say that because God loves me and did so much for me, how can't I give him everything I have and everything I am? I am what I am by the grace of God. And I can tell you that love for our Lord will quickly turn you into a man or a woman that has a heart for God. Love will cause you to grow spiritually and turn you into something that you never were before. 
So this is Paul's desire for them to plunge deeply into God's love. Let God's love overflow them. Let that love consume them. Let them bury themselves, bury self, and exalt Christ. Now when you love someone, you don't quit on them. When they're away from you, you wait until they come back. You you go to the door, you, you keep looking for them to come up the walk. You keep your eyes peeled for a glimpse of them. And that's what a Christian does because of his love for Christ. Now, Christ isn't here physically. You can't see him physically, but you do know he's coming back. He will appear. And here's what John said that you will do because you love him. John said loving him is a sanctification issue. 1 John 2, 28 and 29, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. And that's, that's sort of it in a nutshell. If you are a Christian, you will abide in the faith, you will keep on, you will persevere, and you won't be ashamed of what you did in your life as a Christian when he appears. The saved, the righteous, act righteously. So this is Paul's little interlude to inject some thoughts before he gets into tougher issues. And what comes up next is tougher. And he knows that if people will meet the prayers in this passage, then what he says next will be accepted. They will take that and they will correct things. And as your pastor, I know this, that if you obey this message, we will survive as the Lord's church. So pray for the message and the messenger. Pray for protection. Pray for performance. Pray for perseverance. Depend on the divine. And then may God help us to be simply this, to be Christians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing how badly we need help, how weak we are, How it is impossible for us to stand unless we have the Holy Spirit in us, unless we have you to help us every day of our lives. Lord, we have read here what you expect from us and what we're told to pray about and how we are to live. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to do that. And may we be the the examples that we need to be, not only to prove to people in the world what we believe, But very clearly, your word tells us to prove it to ourselves. We prove it because we have a heart to live for you. Lord, I just pray that's a part of every person in this room today. If there is someone here who hasn't received Christ as Savior, the message is that without faith in him, all men have not faith, and without faith in him, the unbeliever dies and goes to a pitiful hell. Lord, we just ask that you would speak to hearts today, open their hearts to the gospel that has been preached, and may they trust you, repent of their sins, and trust you for their salvation. Thank you, Lord, for what we've heard from your word. We give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 
6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.